Good morning. Welcome to North Shore Church. Uh, what a beautiful day to be worshiping our Lord and Savior today. Um, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, always great to, to see new visitors in our church. And uh, like Pastor Duncan mentioned, uh, there is a picnic after the service. So um, please, uh, please stay for that after the service. We're continuing our, um, our sermon on peacemaking. And we are going to be reading uh, from, cha from Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, <clears throat> and then you will see clearly to take the speck <clears throat> out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the opportunity that you gave us here this morning to worship you corporately. What an honor and privilege it is to, to sing praises to you and, and to pray together and learn about you on a deeper level. Be with each one of us this morning, Lord, and keep Satan from us and remove any distractions that can get in the way of, of worshiping a holy God. Help us to find joy in all circumstances. Allow us to all use our gifts to glorify Jesus and to bless those in the world that we can help bring others to you. Lord, when we hear your voice asking, whom shall I send? Let us be quick to answer. Here I am, Lord, send me. Give us hearts to serve you better and a deeper, at a deeper level. Help us to grow in Christ and fellowship with one another. We give you all the thanks and praise and honor to worship and study and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. As we come together today to recommit ourselves to your direction for our future, we lift our hearts and hands to you and gratitude to you. Father, we pray that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We, we know that, Lord. Help us. Help your word to take root in our hearts today that we can't help but feel you working in our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, to rely on you in whatever we're going through right now. Provide us with rest that we get way too little of because of our busyness and our busy lives. Refresh our souls and give us the energy to encourage one another. Thank you for uh, the time we get to spend at Shore Lunch later today. We get to enjoy uh, that and each other afterwards. May it be a time of fellowship with one another that we can um, just share in our lives with each other. We pray for our church family today that you would heal those who are sick or those who have procedures or treatments or surgeries and are in need of continuing healing. We pray for Mark Henson as he struggles with cancer. We pray for Joe and Nellie Paris as Joe suffers from many health challenges. We pray for Stephen Kim uh, whole for their family, those who are involved in accidents and trauma. We pray for uh, Renee Haberland, Lord, um, the widow of, of uh, her husband who passed away, Father, we, for Fred. We um, pray, God, that you just be with her this day and, and offer her encouragement. We pray for Mary Belke, Belke as, uh, who she fell last week, Lord. We pray for her doctors on any ongoing treatments that may help her. We pray for her and 
For Barb Smith with severe back pain, uh, she has an MRI next week. God, we just pray that you are with her and that you help things get figured out for the pain that she's in. We pray for um, Scott and Elizabeth's neighbor, Justin, who was involved in a motorcycle accident. Lord, we just pray for healing and, and salvation for, for him and his whole family. We pray for Maggie, for her husband Nick, Lord, that we pray that you, just, you are with him through many health challenges as well. Uh, and we pray for all others in need of healing, whether it be physical or spiritual or whatever suffering they're going through. Lord, you are the great physician. May folks come into a relationship with Christ who don't know you today. We pray for all the ministries of, of our church, for the prayer seminar that's coming up. We pray for revival in our churches and our community. And we pray for our visitors and new members and all of our family and uh, for the body. We pray for Pastor Duncan this morning for shepherding this church. Thank you for his wisdom and his words that he reveals from the Bible. Thank you for his passion and his love for the body. Would you be with him now as he brings us the message, Lord? Allow him to speak only the words it is that you want us to hear. Give him grace and give us ears to hear, free from all the distractions. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. Thank you, Scott. Well, as Scott said, uh, we continue this week in our brief series of messages on what the Bible teaches about handling and resolving conflict, or to put it another way, what the Bible teaches believers about what it is we're supposed to be, which is peacemakers. So far, we've seen from the scriptures just how important this topic is as a measure of our love for Jesus and our maturity. Few things in life more clearly reveal our self-centeredness than how we respond and seek to resolve our conflicts in a way that's consistent with Scripture, hopefully. I was re-reminded of my own deep need for this truth just this past week. Michelle was out of town for a few days, and I was at church in the evening for a meeting. I hadn't eaten. I didn't feel like cooking that late, so I went to the drive through lane at a local fast food establishment on my way home from church. As a rule, I don't do this very often, so I placed my order, and the friendly voice announced, your total is such and such, please drive to the next window. So I drove up to the next window and waited for the person to take my money. I waited for about a minute, and there was nobody appearing. Another car pulled up behind me as I was waiting, and after about another minute, the driver sticks her arm out of her car window, waves me forward, and angrily yells at me, go forward to the pickup window. <laughs> at this point, I'm feeling embarrassed <laughs> because it's clear that I don't know the rules here. <laughs> because, anyway, instead of being grateful for her help, even though she was very angry in her tone, I instead became instantly irritated <laughs> because... I am right. <laughs> the employee clearly said, please drive to the next window. I was at the next window. To this moment, I have not one scintilla of doubt that this is precisely what he said. 
After waiting a few more moments after her stinging rebuke, I drove to pick up window number one, accelerating slightly to reflect my irritation. The drive through attendant opens the window with a smile and asks me for the set amount of money, but before I paid him, I first motioned with my arm, pointing out to the window behind me, and I said in a voice loud enough for the woman behind me to hear, the person on the window said I needed to pull up to that next window. That was the next window. The instantly beleaguered 16-year-old man probably looked at me and said defensively, I wasn't the one who took your order, that was somebody else. <laughs> Realizing that I had made him uncomfortable and remembering this series of messages, <laughs> renewed feelings of shame and embarrassment began to rise up within me. However, before completely surrendering to the reality that I had made a complete disaster of this situation, I said smugly to myself, you know, I'm almost never one who responds this way in public, even to people who are manifestly wrong like this person was. I also said some unworthy thoughts about the woman behind me and how it made perfect sense to me that a person like her would be an expert in drive-through etiquette. <laughs> After I had collected my food and exited onto the street, the full extent of my foolishness began to sink in. I confessed my sin and drove dejectedly back home as I began to eat what were very cold french fries. <laughs> I did not, as I should have, go back and apologize to the young man. I'd allowed shame to completely control me at this point. But the point is, is I drove home and then I did my sulking. All of that to say, these kind of encounters have a very powerful way of revealing to us stuff that we didn't see was in there, but it is. Well, as wrong as the way I handled conflict was, we've also seen that it's also wrong to avoid conflict on the other side by avoiding it or trying to keep a stiff upper lip and saying nothing when we've been offended. That can be as wrong from a biblical perspective as when you blow up, or as I did, respond with smugness. Last week, we saw from James chapter 4 that the main cause of our conflicts and quarrels are the passions that are at war within us. The main cause of our conflicts, as my sad account illustrates, is not the sins or the perceived sins of the other guy, what he or she does not or does do, but the sin that indwells us. It's already in our hearts, and if we're not under the Spirit's control, our sin can easily be triggered or awakened by the action of others, but it's our sin. James clearly says that the sins or perceived sins of others are not what creates the sin in our own heart. Our sins are just triggered or awakened by sins of other people or things that we think are sins. We saw from Ephesians that those unmet desires in our hearts that are triggered can easily become idols when we put them ahead of God and what he says 
should be important in our lives. We also saw last week that our motive for resolving conflict should be the same motivation we have in all of our living as Christians, and that is it should be for the glory of God. We should be motivated in our conflicts that Jesus would be seen as great and supreme, of supreme value in how we respond to this conflict. Finally, we looked at what the Bible teaches on what kinds of things are worth getting into conflicts about in the first place. We saw that many of the offenses that we experience, we should just overlook. But other offenses are very much worth having an open airing of our concerns. And we thought about how the Spirit of God guides us in those situations to help us to know God's will. Today, as we move further into this topic of what it is to live as a peacemaker, the Bible seems to differentiate between situations where spontaneous correction to someone who's sinning can and should be given within the church, and other contexts where some heart preparation is required before we confront. This is not to say that some sins are or worse than others, whenever we sin, it's always evil, it's always high treason against a holy God, but the context of how and when we're wrong can be very different, and so our responses should be different as well. This is about more than simply we choose to confront or overlook. It's more complicated than that. There are different contexts uh, that include different kinds of sin and different kind of relationships that, that happen. And so those factors obviously impact how we're supposed to respond. To say it another way, all sin is evil because it's against God, but not all sin is the same. And different sins require different responses from us if we're on the receiving end of those or we perceive that we've been on the receiving end of them. We see this kind of differentiation implied in the Bible because of the way that the Bible talks about sin. The Old Testament uses f four main different words to describe sin. Uh, one of them means missing the mark or deviating from the goal. Another means twisting or something that's perverse. Another means straying away from the path. Another means to act wicked, wickedly uh, or to be wicked. In the New Testament, there are even more words for different kinds of sins, though they're all consistent with the Old Testament. There's a word that means simply just a misdeed or a trespass. Another means going beyond the norm. Another conveys lawlessness or contempt for the law. Another means doing wrong to one's neighbor out of wickedness. Those different kinds of sins can inspire different responses when we're being sinned against. For instance, in many cases, but not all, if someone has done something that would be classified as a misdeed, you may very well be justified in overlooking that. But when a fellow believer does wrong to you in a way that shows contempt for the moral law of God, and it's a believer in particular, those sins are more likely to be the ones that you'll feel obliged to offer some loving correction over. As we said, another factor that impacts how we respond to being sinned against is the relationship we have with the person who is offending us. If you're at a Christian conference of some kind and there are hundreds of believers surrounding you and you don't know any of them, they're all strangers, you're going to be far less likely to confront a believer who may have said something that's rude to you than someone who's in your small group or someone you're serving closely with in the context of the church. Another contextual factor that influences whether we're going to confront someone about their sin is whether, for instance, a brother or sister makes an isolated, 
for instance, rude remark, or a believer you know, that same believer perhaps, is in the pattern of making rude remarks. You notice they've fallen into a pattern of making rude comments. In those cases, your love for the brother or sister who's slipped into this pattern of rudeness will certainly incline you to bring some loving correction if you're functioning biblically. But if it's a one-off, though that's no less sinful to God, you're probably right in letting it go. Again, context is decisive in all of this. There are so many factors, however, involved in making determinations about when and how to confront sin that there are doubtless exceptions to any principle you would lay down. Yesterday is a good example at the men's huddle. One of the brothers was speaking of a situation that normally I would have said it's completely wrong for you to have confronted in the way that you did, but as he explained it, it was very reasonable. There was, a, there was a, a, a younger woman, and she was making terribly disrespectful comments to an elderly woman that she was with. It was a lengthy, and it was, sounded like it was just a dehumanizing tirade. Because this was such an egregious offense, I think the brother was right when he, even as a stranger, brought some very pointed but gentle words of correction to this younger woman. And the older woman personally thanked him for defending her honor in public. Now, that's an unusual situation. But the other people who had been forced to listen to this rant, and they were other people, they almost certainly felt the same way. And so I think it was appropriate in that situation to give voice to those concerns. I think God was honored in that. The point of citing that exception is to make the point that ultimately the Holy Spirit has to direct us in these situations. All we can do is basically give guidelines, but understand no principle is a one-size-fits-all. Well, now that we've talked a little bit about context, which is important, let's look at what the Scripture has to say about situations where we feel compelled to spontaneously respond to a fellow believer's sin. These are genuinely, or gen generally situations where we've been sinned against. We're the, the victim at this point, but it could be ones that we've just witnessed happening somewhere else. The scholars tell us that this is what Jesus is talking about, this same context in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In these verses, obviously, which we, most of us have heard many times, most of the time we focus on the forgiving seven times. And we're going to pick up the topic of forgiveness later on in this series, but for now, focus on verse 3, where it says, if your brother, so clearly it's a believer, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That's pretty clear. Now, because in the next verse, Jesus does talk about need to forgive, it's probably about sins that are committed against you. But again, it probably also could apply to sins that you witness. What I want us to see in this verse is that it clearly implies that Jesus envisions his church very differently than what many Bible-believing Christians envision the church to be. He clearly sees the church as a community, a community of believers where love for one another is expressed occasionally in personal correction or even rebuke. As we said before, we live in a conflict-averse 
culture in this part of the world. And so the thought of us being part of a community where people feel freedom to speak words of correction to one another might make some of us feel a bit edgy. But the words of Jesus here make it clear that he does not see this kind of community or koinonia to be optional. It's the way he views church. The original language in verse 3 is an imperative. That means it's a command. Jesus is commanding believers, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Again, this assumes some kind of relationship with the brother or sister, but the elephant in the room in many churches is that most believers know only a very small people, if anybody, in their church well enough to feel comfortable confronting them about their sin, if they've ever confronted anybody about a sin other than maybe their kids. Although a church the size of this one will never have the kind of fellowship where we all know each other well enough to have that kind of intimate relationship, we should strive to have that kind of fellowship with as many people as possible, especially same-sex people. That's impossible if we mostly see one another for an hour, a week, where the topics naturally in our conversations on Sunday morning are about how the Packers are doing or about our grandkids. So do the superficial relationships that exist in many churches mean that we're just relegated to not experiencing this kind of loving community? And the answer, of course, is no. The answer is not that we should learn to be content with superficial relationships and the lack of biblical and loving community that produces them. The answer is that churches should apply themselves to establishing the kind of biblical community where many of those close relationships can exist. Having the kind of community in a church that will encourage close, loving relationships is a big reason for in this church, community groups. If you're not in a community group, don't know what a community group is, please think very seriously about getting into one. Feel free to ask one of the elders or the church office, and we'll work to get you in a group that fits you. Unless you're meeting with believers in small groups regularly, whether it's a formal community group or maybe another small group of intimate believers, if that's not happening, you're missing an important part of your discipleship with Jesus. And as we saw in Ephesians, we desperately need each other to be more like Jesus, to sharpen iron, as the Proverbs say. Please know that the goal of all of this is not to be in a church where we feel freedom to just chew one another up. That would be a sinful distortion. But what we do seek here is that we would be together enough to provide for the development of genuine Christ-like love for one another. And one consequence of that is to have a community where we love one another and we trust one another enough so that if, if one of us is spiritually struggling in an area, we would feel freedom to speak openly about that. That's the way the church is supposed to be. And when someone does bring that kind of correction to us in that setting, we wouldn't feel shame and humiliation, we'd feel gratitude that we're part of a church where we love one another enough, where we help sharpen one another to be more like Jesus. A healthy believer wants to be in a church like that, where there's that kind of genuine koinonia or community. Part of the challenge of hearing messages on conflict resolution is that many of us have just not experienced that kind of community very often, where it felt safe 
to both give that kind of correction and receive it. Tragically, in my experience, many believers have experienced this only in a very, very limited way. And that means that when they think about this kind of peacemaking community or being part of what Ken Sandy calls a culture of peace, that can feel a bit threatening. The reason we labor, and we have labored, the importance of developing this kind of community is because when we get to heaven and see Jesus, we're not going to be able to excuse our superficial love of him by saying, what can I say, Lord? I was never in a church or group of believers where that kind of sharpening took place. It's not going to fly. <laughs> As we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, the New Testament repeatedly reveals Jesus died to provide for a bride, a church, where that kind of fellowship was possible. He's also given us his word, where that kind of fellowship is modeled in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and it's taught in much of the rest of the New Testament. That means that church leadership is responsible to do our best before God to provide for this, and the rest of the church is responsible to seek it out. If we choose not to build or not to participate in this kind of loving fellowship where occasionally we can be corrected and should be, then that's on us. Now let's shift gears back to looking at what the Bible has to say about situations where it's wise not to do spontaneous confrontation, but to do some heart preparation before confronting. The first situation where heart confrontation or heart preparation is necessary is when we have been in one of those situations earlier where we were clearly prompted to say something spontaneously and we said, no, I'm not going to do that. We lose our nerve. We disobey. In some of those situations, the moment has passed, it's over, it's too late. But in some of those situations, we need to prepare our hearts at least by confessing our earlier unfaithfulness before we go back to that brother or sister. As we'll see, the scripture clearly teaches that there should be some heart preparation in any encounter, spontaneous or planned. We should always do the heart work necessary to make sure we're operating out of a motivation for the glory of God and to show love to our erring brother or sister. But in the text that Scott read, we see another crucial part of the believer's preparation for engaging in conflict with other believers. And that's the context. This is other believers. This is Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, and we looked at this more closely a while back when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, but let's take another look at it beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is obviously a very famous saying of Jesus, I heard, I've heard this several times, that this is the f now most quoted text from people outside the church. 
judge not, because they don't understand at all what Jesus is saying here. They think this means open tolerance in any situation of all things. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. It's also important to notice that the motivation here for not judging is judgment. <laughs> so he's not fooling around here. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we should take this text, which is very familiar, with a degree of sobriety here. This is serious business. It is important also for us to say that when Jesus says, judge not, he certainly does not mean that as believers, we should never make moral judgments about other people. Think about it. Jesus says in verse 5 that at some point, we should be taking the specks out of other believers' eyes. Well, that obviously implies bringing correction to other believers who are not able to see the speck in their own eyes. So Jesus is not forbidding judging here. He's saying, judge. Judge yourself first. That's what he's saying. And we've all heard of or maybe even witnessed or been a part of a situation where someone confronted another believer without taking the log out of their own eye. Maybe we've done that. Maybe this is seen in a brother or sister who's jealous or envious, and so they respond reflexively by finding fault with someone. They're not motivated by God's glory or love for the person when they're confronting. Maybe it's, it's a situation where a person becomes a spec inspector because they're trying to impress others with their spiritual discernment or for some other self-serving reason. Or maybe we confront someone with their sin in an attempt to hide from our own sin, or because we're seeking to make ourselves feel better by climbing over the backs of other people and correcting them. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we, have, we do this by, with a log in our eye. With any of those examples, we need to first pull the log out of our own eye. Only then we'll be free to help in ways that will glorify God and display love for people. We can be blind to our own Pharisaic self-righteousness. So when Jesus says, judge not, what he's really concerned about is judgmentalism. D.A. Carson is right. Being judgmental is very different than legitimately judging someone else's sin by bringing loving correction. Believers who become judgmental take some sort of twisted pleasure or get something out of finding fault in others. And because this is a potential sin for all of us, Jesus tells us that before we seek to take the speck out of someone else's eye, and we all have sinful specks, we should first make certain that we're motivated by love for them and the glory of God, rather than a desire to be right, or set someone straight, or to show somebody what great spiritual insight, or what a discerning spirit we have to be able to see their sin. Well, now that we've introduced this business of preparing our hearts, let's just spend the rest of our time looking at three truths or what we would call principles of engagement from the New Testament that should dictate how we go about this, how we should go to another believer when we sense the need to bring correction. Matthew 18 is a crucial text in a whole lot of this. We're going to spend more time on this later because this is the main text in all of the Gospels where Jesus does church discipline. That's what he talks about here. So we're going to come back to this for today. We're only going to look at three overarching truths about how we're to confront a brother or sister. 
First, in verse 15 is the only place we need to go. Jesus is introducing this section. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first of the three truths implied here is go promptly. Go promptly. Now, in the situation that Jesus is envisioning here, there's already been some sort of delay between the sin and the confrontation because he says, go. Go to this person. So you're not there initially. You have to go to that person. This wasn't a spontaneous correction, so you need to go to them. Now, it's clear that this delay does not imply not doing the heart preparation. Obviously, we've seen that's important. Neither does it imply hemming and hawing around and putting off the difficult meeting. We do it promptly in our conflict-averse culture. This kind of process instead often, sadly, looks like this. We experience some sort of sin or offense or hurt. We do not confront, and so the hurt is still there. And because the hurt is still there, we're inclined to keep our distance even further from the offender because that person's hurt me. We tend to lose trust of those people who have hurt us, and so the longer we delay, the more our trust for the offender degenerates. But Jesus is telling believers, go, go to the brother or sister who's hurt us. Jesus is saying, don't avoid the person, don't allow your negative feelings to deepen and further distort your perception of the person. Go to them, talk to them, love on them. A second truth dictates how we confront a brother or sister is in verse 15. Go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. So we're not only to go promptly, we're to go privately. Go privately. One of the biggest temptations is to bring someone else into your peacemaking process who has no business being there. There are at least two reasons why we feel a need to not keep things private. <clears throat> First, we have big mouths and loose tongues. That's not me. I'm not saying that's the Bible. James says in chapter 3, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. He talks about the tongue in generic terms because it's a universal problem. We all have it. We are all liable to gossip. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer, which is another way to talk about gossip, are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Gossip tastes delicious to our sinful flesh, and so we need to learn to deny ourselves of that delicacy. A second reason we're tempted to sinfully share with others should be private matter. Uh, why we're tempted to sin instead of making it private or keeping it private is because we're hurt, and we naturally try to find solace and comfort from others when we're hurting. It's hard to suffer alone. The answer, however, is not to come, get comfort from other believers who will feast on our gossip. The answer is to work to heal the hurt by going to the person who hurt us and reconciling with that person. Sometimes we gossip under the cover of, I need prayer, so please listen to what so-and-so did to me. Okay, that's not only gossip, it's disingenuous, because though we may genuinely feel the need for prayer, 
We can share these things in non-specific ways that keep the details private, so we're not revealing any confidences. <clears throat> we don't need to share the details in a prayer request. God knows everything anyway. A final truth here dictating how we confront is go and restore. Go and restore. This is what Jesus means when he says, if he listens to you, have gained your brother. Okay, if you confront the believer rightly, the goal is always restoration or reconciliation, in other words. Galatians 6.1, which is a monster text in this area, which we'll come back to in the future because it teaches so much. Paul says, as it relates to this point of restoration, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The emphasis is on gently restoring the person. Now that may be restoration of his or her relationship with God. If their sin is a symptom of them being out of fellowship with God, and sometimes it is. And by the way, what a privilege it is for us to be used to restore a believer into their fellowship with God. But this can also indicate winning him back or winning her back into fellowship with you. If your relationship has been damaged, if the person responds appropriately, you can now be reconciled and begin rebuilding the relationship to the degree that that's necessary. The point of confrontation is to win the person back to fellowship with God, and when necessary, winning the person back to fellowship with you. There's a whole lot more we need to say about living as a peacemaker. Lord willing, we'll speak that in the weeks to come. For now, may God give us grace to follow these principles of engagement for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, there's a lot here, and it's nuanced. Life is complicated, and so ultimately, God, we need your spirit. But God, what we, we need also are hearts that are willing to obey our hearts that are willing to take the risk of saying something that will be hurtful sometimes, but hopefully loving as well. God, we can't do this. We're all apart from you. We're self-centered. We're insecure. Apart from you, we want everybody to know that we're maybe not perfect, but close. And God, we all know it's a game we play. We all know it's a lie. And yet we continue to harbor these fantasies. God, I just pray that you would, in my heart and in our fellowship here, help us to love one another. Because that's ultimately what it comes down to. And help us to want to live for the glory of God more than the popularity of the people we might have to corrupt someday. All these things are hard issues, and we cannot change our hearts one iota at all. And so, God, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray that you would enable us to be so impacted by the truth of the gospel that you sent your son to die for sinners like us and our Savior who knows every sin we've ever committed in thought, word, and deed still loves us, that we would be so influenced and so strengthened by the gospel that we would have, by the Holy Spirit, the strength to say what needs to be said to others and to be able to hear what we need to hear from others 
so that you can be honored and so that the love of Christ would be seen in our midst in very powerful ways. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.